Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Dozman, and today I'm joined by Andrew Milner to discuss his recent anthology, Again, Dangerous Visions, Essays in Cultural Materialism. The anthology collects over two dozen essays of his, stretching back to 1981 up to the present, and covers topics ranging from the sociology of literary studies, political and theoretical transitions of leftist politics, and the politics surrounding science fiction. Milner is Professor Emeritus of English and Comparative Literature at Monash University and is the author of over a dozen books, including Reimagining Cultural Studies and Locating Science Fiction. So, Andrew Milner, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you very much. Uh, So before we dive in, uh, could you maybe introduce yourself to listeners really quickly and just tell us a bit about what your main areas of research are? Yes, sure. I'm I'm originally by training a sociologist uh, in Britain, in fact, with the London School of Economics. But I emigrated to Australia in 1980, which is a very long time ago now. Uh, and uh, I moved slowly into comparative literature as a discipline. So that's the field, I, broad field I work in as a sociologist of literature, actually. And I'm, I've been particularly interested in science fiction and, and in climate fiction, uh, the last uh, last decade or so. Yeah, that's fine. Um, so to start off, the essays or the book's subtitle is Essays in Cultural Materialism. Uh, this term was coined by Malvin Harris and then developed by Raymond Williams. Um, that term is likely unfamiliar to a lot of listeners. So to start off, can you maybe give a brief introduction to the key elements of it as a framework or methodology? Yes, sure. Uh, I'll I'll make a slight comment first. Uh, Marvin Harris is certainly the first person to use the term, and so in a sense he does coin it, in in anthropology as a discipline. But I don't think Williams or or anybody else much in literary and cultural studies knew Harris's work. So I think there's a sense in which Williams coins the term too, but only a a few years later. Uh, And it's Williams' usage that that I'm mainly working in, because like Williams, I'm a, I'm a sort of sociologist of, of literature. Um, uh, what, what Williams's version of, of, cult, of cultural materialism means, and there are similarities, by the way, between Harris and Williams. They both think there are important insights in the Marxist tradition, and they both think there are important flaws which need substantially modifying. So they are analogous, but I think they're slightly different. Um, the crucial idea in Williams which is, as I say, analogous to that in, in Harris, is that that culture itself can be considered as a material practice, a, mat- a material practice produced in institutions. Now, to me, that sounds obviously true, but when you, you need to situate it in terms of a, a much longer intellectual history, in which um, what if you think back at, 
at English literary criticism, uh, or at literary studies in other in other countries for that matter, in Germany in particular, the idea had always been that literature was something that was completely independent from and, and opposed to the material world. And that's a philosophical or, or superior to. Uh, and if you look back, you can see echoes of that in a philosophical tradition that includes Hegel and Plato uh, and indeed lo- lots of Christian thinkers. The ideal is, is superior to the material. Uh, on the other hand, there are there are there is a long-standing materialist tradition which which sees ideas as a, as a kind of reflection or a consequence of material practices, a direct consequence. And I think you can see that in 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 in, in Hobbes in England. In fact, in the, in the long-standing English tradition of utilitarianism, uh, Hobb, Thomas Hobbes and uh, and Jeremy Bentham. Uh, to some extent, John Stuart Mill, but also you can see it in certain kinds of Marxism, in, especially in Engels, perhaps. Uh, I'm not sure Marx is guilty of this, but he was certainly represented as being guilty of that uh, by subsequent Marxists. Now, what Williams wants to argue, uh, and he's not alone in this, but he's one of the key figures, is that actually all those aspects of culture, you know, literature, art, and so on, they are themselves manufactured in material institutions, and they in themselves have material causes and consequences. They're not an effect of an economy somewhere else. They are themselves an important part of the material world. Now, that's the approach that I've always tended to take towards literary studies. Uh, does that answer the question? To kind of move into some of the more specific stuff you write about, um, early on you write that there is a certain polarization between literary with a capital L studies and cultural studies, particularly in terms of both what counts as a text worth studying and how those texts should be approached. Can you unpack this debate a bit and where, given your background and research interests, you find yourself in it? Yes, yeah, sure. Um the first thing to say is that literary, st- the contemporary cultural studies really grows out of literary studies. Um, by cultural studies, I mean in the broadest sense of the study of media and so on. Um, if you go back, you, you, the, in, certainly in, in Britain with Raymond Williams and Richard Hoggart, in France with Roland Barthes, uh, in Germany with the Frankfurt School, Adorno and Horkheimer and so on, what you find is a discourse that really begins focused on, on literature and the other arts, but then slowly broadens its scope to, to, to look at mass media texts, very often looking at them in a fairly hostile and critical fashion. Uh, now, now, that is the move, uh, not, but not always hostile, by the way. It was very hostile for Adorno and Horkheimer. For Williams and Hoggart in Britain, they were quite sympathetic to the importance of working class culture. Uh, so that the, the, the but that, that's how cultural studies tends to develop in those certainly in those three countries and and also later in, in Australia too and in, and in, I think in the United States, um, the, the certainly Williams and Hoggart too had had, in, had, in, had always intended cultural studies to be about both elite culture and popular culture. It was about literature, but also about television and so on. Um, but, but as, as cultural studies has, has developed and expanded and become institutionalized in higher education itself, what you find is that it, it, it increasingly focused only on mass culture. Uh, and that prompts a kind of, there's a, there's a, a rift between literary studies and, uh, and media and cultural studies, which prompts a backlash, uh, certainly from some of the more uh, elitist forms of um, of, of, of literary studies. I'm, I'm, I think the, where, the bit you're citing is where I'm talking about Harold Bloom. Uh, and Bloom's The Western Canon is a strong reaction against cultural studies. There's, there are lots of others as well. Um, and it, it's because this of the sense that cultural studies is, is, is kind of academic populism. It, it, it's, it's a relativist. Now, where do I stand? Well, I, 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 I clearly stand with Raymond Williams in, in, and Richard Hoggart, I, I think the important thing is that is that is that literature and all the other art forms, including the popular art forms, including the mass media, can, are all social institutions that can all be studied sociologically. Um, I, I think that I think that has always seemed to me to be fairly obvious, but but that's because I see I'm not actually trained in literary studies. I was trained in sociology, and I have the kind of approach towards social institutions that you you pick up as a sociologist. I think Williams. 
himself, although trained in literary studies, eventually really remodels himself as as a kind of sociologist. But I started as a sociologist, so I I, I found it easier to come to this position. That literature is is a social practice amongst many other social practices. In one of your essays uh, titled The Protestant Epic and the Spirit of Capitalism, you turn to the poet Milton and his epic poetry to make sense of certain currents around the nature of the subject, trying to find the source of the bourgeois idea of a rational, independent individual. You also then develop this in relation to Milton's later question, that between advocating political quietism and activism. So two-part question here. What was the main thrusts or thrust of Milton's idea of the subject, and what sort of politics did Milton draw from this? Right, those are complicated questions. Um, but let me just make a, an autobiographical observation that one of the reasons I was interested in Milton, uh, one of the reasons I still am interested in Milton, is that I, I come from a Protestant background, and he, he is a quintessentially a Protestant thinker. So, so part of the answer to your first like, question, this idea of the subject, is it is very, very Protestant, not Calvinist, but, 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 but a different kind of Protestantism. For Milton, it, 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 it's the, the subject, the, the free subject, the, the subject, it, it's, it's kind of analogous to, to René Descartes and to the idea of, of, uh, of a discrete, rational individual. This is this is the this is what we are in our essential nature. Uh, we are free. We are reasoning, uh, and we we function as individuals, not as as part of a tribe or a collectivity. Um, but this free rationality, which is the way Milton sees God as having made human beings, uh, it's it, 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 it can be threatened, threatened internally by the passions. Uh, so, so that if we give way to our passions, then we then we lose our capacity to reason, uh, and it can be threatened externally uh, by by tyranny, by tyrannical institutions. Uh, so it becomes uh, a, a very um, it, it is very Protestant in its stress on the individual, but not Calvinist because there is no determinism here. Um, but it is also very individualistic uh, in opposition to institutions. Uh, it, it's not surprising that Milton becomes, in fact, a revolutionary radical uh, during the English Revolution. Now, that's the second. That leads me directly into your second question, um, because, of course, Milton uh, is um, lives through the the, the 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 crisis of English absolutism, uh, the Civil War, and the Revolution, and the Republic, uh, it, the, or the Commonwealth. Um, uh, as it, as it called itself. So it's a distinctly revolutionary form of Protestantism. Uh, Milton was a, 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 a significant intellectual supporter of, of, of the Commonwealth government, of Oliver Cromwell, uh, and, and before that, a supporter of the revolution dur- during the civil wars. Um, he wrote the official defences of republicanism and of regicide, the execution of the king. He wrote these uh, both in English for popular distribution in England and in Latin uh, for, for, for distribution across Europe. Uh, so he was, in many ways, the intellectual most closely identified with the politics, uh, certainly of the early years of, of the Republic. Uh, and oh, 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 the monarchy is restored in 1660. The Republic is declared in 1649. Um, uh, um, Milton Stoically resists the restoration of the monarchy. He he does he doesn't he does not. Well, actually, the first few months he's imprisoned. He was very lucky to escape um, uh, execution as a regicide, uh, but he hadn't actually signed the death warrant, and it was only those who signed the death warrants who were executed. But certainly, it's a kind of it's a kind of radical Protestant revolutionary liberalism, if you like. Uh, which I suspect is, is is today more familiar to, to to Americans than it is to English people. Uh, I, I I said that a part of my attraction to to Milton was was my own Protestant background. I have to add to that I'm, I'm I am myself a Republican, which is not a good thing to be in England, but it's much better in Australia. And uh, it's um, it, it seems to me that um, that I'm uh, that part of Milton's politics I'm closely attracted to the the utter contempt that he had for Charles Stuart and for the monarchy. 
Writing on postmodernism, you connect it to what you call apocalyptic hedonism, as well as post-war methods of commodity production. Can you unpack your understanding of postmodernism here, and why do you think Australia was, and given recent events likely still is, emblematic of this understanding of postmodernism? Yeah. Okay, good question. Look, I, my understanding of postmodernism isn't really terribly original. It's essentially borrowed from Frederick Jameson, uh, from the book on postmodernism that he wrote a long time ago, uh, in, in which he argues that postmodernism is the cultural dominant of late capitalism. Uh, the, the 19th century, the cultural dominant had been realism in the very late 19th and early 20th century, it's modernism. And after modernism, after the Second World War, essentially, it becomes postmodernism. Uh, now, it's not just talking about artistic styles, although they are part of this. It's also more background assumptions that come across all sorts of arts and, and, and philosophies and so on. Um, one key feature is, is relativism, aesthetic relativism. Um, uh, and and that ties into a kind of, of hedonism, uh, in, in that um, it, a hedonism which which what matters is what you enjoy, not what some overarching uh, literary or, or artistic or religious authority says you should enjoy. Um, now that kind of uh, I, I, I think that's true. I think our culture is increasingly relativistic, and. But it's also an aspect of that is hedonism. Uh, now, I'll come on to why I think that's particularly true in Australia. But um, this happens to coincide I mean, with, with, with the fear of nuclear catastrophe. Uh, it, it, it coincides with the Cold War. Uh, Jameson dates it from shortly after, shortly after the Second World War, and that is the period of the Cold War. And of the fear, the widespread popular mass fear, of nuclear catastrophe, which has been augmented subsequently by other fears, the fear of climate change, um, which in Australia plays out as the fear of bushfires and floods at present. So that, so what I argue is, is, in, is in that essay is that the, this coincidence of, 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 of a hedonistic aesthetic with, an, with, the, with the fear of apocalypse but creates apocalyptic hedonism. Now, I confess that that whilst I think this applies in other countries, it, it, it's I'm living in Australia when I come up with this view, and I do think that that, that Australia fits it very very well. Um, uh, firstly, Australia is it's a very affluent society. Uh, it, it, like like the United States, it's not. It, 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 I mean, in the in the early 1950s, by far the wealthiest countries with per capita in terms of per capita income on Earth were the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Uh, I think Britain eventually, but they're, they're all above the United Kingdom and above all European countries. It's a, it's a very affluent society. It is, I think, Australia. Now I'm talking about quite specifically. It is a very hedonistic society. Uh, we are a culture of, of pagan sun worshippers more than we're Christians. We, um, uh, we're very irreligious by United States standards. We don't tend to go to church very often. We do go to the beach uh, and to watch the football and the cricket. Um, and so that, that that sense of hedonistic indulgence was something which which really struck me when I came to Australia. Um, this this is a, a land of beaches and barbecues. Um, it's also, however, in its deep culture. Uh, very frightened historically. Historically, Australia was frightened of Japan and China uh, because it was uh, an outpost of the British Empire at the wrong end of the planet, surrounded by, a, by well, threatened by, by nearby Asian powers. The, the, the racism of Australian society was directed at China in the late 19th century and then in the 20th later on at Japan. Uh, and, and this plays out as a, as a, as a desperate desire for a, a, amongst the European settlers um, for a great and powerful friend. In the first place, Britain, uh, and secondly, the United States. Um, but, but, but the sense of threat remains real. Uh, uh, and I think it's, it's playing out a slightly different way recently because the threat is, is increasingly seen as, 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 as that of nature, uh, nature turning, turning against us. That this terrible summer of bushfires, which we've just been through. Bushfires is what Australians call wildfires. Um, you, you call them wildfires, we call them bushfires. 
Uh, and and we more of Australia has burned this last summer, which is your winter, than than, than ever on record. And there is a, a, a mass fear that that, that that we are we are threatened. We were, were threatened. We are threatened by nuclear war. We are threatened by climate change. Uh, and I, this combination is is extreme I, in Australia, more so than in, in in Britain, or I would guess in the United States. Now that's why I, I when I'm talking about apocalyptic hedonism in that essay, I latched onto Neville Shute's book novel on the beach, which is a a famous Australian novel that, that became internationally famous. And it is one of the most impressive novels, science fiction novels, to deal with the threat of nuclear war. And my sense about that novel is it embodies very nicely this this this, this Australian combination, which I think is present in other country, cultures too, of on the one hand apocalypticism, but on the other hand hedonism. One of the big topics in many of the fields you engage is in the nature of the author. You write at one point, quote, in Bordeaux, as in Williams, the effect of such cultural materialism is to decenter the artist as author so that the central question becomes the dynamic in a relationship between social structure, individual action, and cultural practice, end quote. This sparked my interest because you're bringing up a lot of really interesting dynamics regarding the nature of the author and the subject as being kind of in a certain milieu and the possibilities for expressing agency. So I'd be curious to hear you unpack a bit about these dynamics you bring up and to use your terms, you talk about habitus or structure of feeling. Uh, can you kind of unpack this a little bit? Yes, sure. I mean, neither of those terms is mine. I, I, habitus is Pierre Bourdieu and structure of feeling is, is Raymond Williams. Um, and I, I use both, especially structure of feeling. Um, I, I, I think what Williams means by structure of feeling, he, 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 he's interested in the, the, the way in which, at any particular time and place, uh, the, the background assumptions, before we get to this particular ideological positions, the background assumptions are sometimes socially shared and they're not there in other places and times. One of the things he talks about when he's talking about England in the 19th century is that whether you were on the political right or the political left, um, whether you were for it or against it, you were always aware, conscious of the absolute centrality of the new science and technologies uh, to, the, to the developing culture. Uh, as exemplified crucially about the, the expansion of the railway system. Uh, now, I think that's very, I think that's very interesting because it, it, what structure of feeling does in identifying those, I mean, the, the two terms don't seem to go together. They say structures don't seem to apply to things as intimate as feelings. But Williams argues that, that in fact, they do, that you can look at the way feelings are themselves structured and patterned. Uh, now, now again, as I think I said earlier on, I am by training a sociologist, and sociologists do see all individuals, whether they're authors or, or, or not, as essentially social beings. Uh, if you like, sociology has an in-principle objection to Margaret Thatcher's claim that there is no such thing as society. Society is what sociologists begin with. Um, and uh, Bourdieu, by the way, was a professional sociologist. Williams was a trained in literary studies, but moved in a sociological direction. Um, but what they, what they, what's interesting about them both is they they attempt to reconcile the sociological insight that we are social beings, and with a, 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 a non with a more than residual sense of human individual human agency. Now, now the, often this this debate is the, this in philosophical terms and elsewhere, this is represented as a kind of binary opposition. You're either a, a, a methodological individualist in the fashion of economics and much psychology, or you're a methodological holist um, in the fashion of anthropology and sociology. Um, but I think what Bourdieu, uh, uh, clearly, although, although Bourdieu and Williams both come down on the side of the social, they want to see, nonetheless, the social as something that that actually facilitates individual agency, it's not merely a constraint. Our, our social being both 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 restrains and enables us, and this is true for 
authors as well. Authors, uh, yes, they're exceptional in the sense that they're, they're unusually good at writing. Uh, but on the other hand, like all other individuals, they are what their capacity to write and what they write about is is restricted by their social milieu, but it's also enabled by it. So it's a it's a form. It enables the, the agency as well as constraining it. Now, now I think that's right, uh, and I, I think it's a it's a kind of sociological insight which Bourdieu and, and Williams both share, uh, and which I tr- which my own work is based upon. One figure who looms large over a lot of the last several decades is Louis Althusser. Across a couple different chapters, you trace certain developments in his wake, writing that a lot of the debates around Althusser were expressions of the larger transition from structuralism to post-structuralism. So what were the limitations being encountered in structuralism that other theorists hope to overcome by a turn toward post-structural theories of history and subjectivity? Yeah, it's a, it's a very com- very complicated question. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. no, I'm thinking about it. Look, first thing to say is Althusser is clearly not a post-structuralist. Althusser is, is a structuralist almost par excellence. Um, um, but he certainly moved in overlapping circles, I mean, personal biographical circles, um, with people who became central to, to, to post-structuralism. He was friends with Derrida, um, uh, and Michel Foucault was a student of his. Uh, so they, so they, and, and they all start within a, a within a broadly structuralist milieu in in, in France. Um, and and what I think Althusserianism, Althusserian's particular ideas, especially the theory of ideology, uh, provides a route from from earlier for, for many from for many. Uh, from, from an earlier kind of structural Marxism towards post-structuralism, uh, that that's what I think happens. It, it's um, yeah, and that's uh, it, that's that's to do both with Althusser's reception in France, but more so towards his reception in the English-speaking world, both in Australia and in the United States and, and, in, and, in, and in Britain. Um, uh, now, now what the problem with structuralism in general, and I think I think. It's, that's the way you you pose the question. What was the problem with structuralism? Well, it's a it's a problem with Althusserianism, but it's also a problem with structuralism in general. Is that it's massively over deterministic. Uh, some structuralist models uh, are, 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 are so deterministic that there is simply no room uh, for individual agency. And and to some extent, I think that's actually true for Althusser. He he, he represents individuals as essentially the supports of structures. Um, when he talks about uh, interpolation, he's talking about the way ideology hails an individual, hails the individual so that the individual um, uh, speaks the I- ideology. Um, in this, in the structuralist model, this version of, of, of society, we don't speak language, language speaks us. And that, now there's an important insight there that I don't want to simply gloss over, um, but it, but it, but it, it becomes massively over-deterministic, and as such, it, it doesn't really uh, provide much of a way into the questions of, of political or even ethical agency. I mean, there is an, an obvious irony that, that in, in France, at any rate, that the, before this structuralist moment, the key figure had probably been Jean, Jean Paul Sartre and Simon de Beauvoir, and the existentialists who stressed Above all, the capacity for individuals to make choices. Now, this, the 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 Althusserian and this more broadly structuralist wave uh, moves away from there and suggests that there are no meaningful choices to be made. Now, I think part of the 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 the, 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 the dissatisfaction with structuralism is the sense the sense that 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 one needs some some understanding of how individuals and groups make choices and how they and how they act. Um, post-structuralism seemed, post, whether Derrida and deconstruction or, or, or Foucault, Foucault in discourse, um, the, 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 the post-structuralism seemed to offer solutions to this impasse. Um, now, my own view is that, well, I think Williams and Bourdieu offer better solutions than Derrida and Foucault. Um, but I can see that the appeal of Derrida and Foucault um, was precisely that, that we, we were able to, to move beyond the the impasse of of, of never ending determinism, uh, 
one of the, I mean, because it seems to me that, that, that people people do know that they make meaningful choices, and they know that there are meaningful choices at the social and political level as well. It's it's not absolute. I mean, not absolutely so. Of course, uh, we make choices in context, and the contexts are constraining. But nonetheless, the choices are to some extent meaningful. Uh, if if Sartre and the existentialists had overstated the, the role of agency, then then the structuralists clearly understated it. Um, and I think Bourdieu does this. He's clearly re- dealing with. Sartre at one extreme, and Levi Strauss, the, the structural anthropologist, as another, and and in a sense, Williams is also dealing with with uh, frankly F. R. Leavis, um, who who would be the the, the the idealist figure in in in, in English literary studies, um, but then he's also reacting negatively against certain kinds of deterministic Marxism. So it's it's a, it's a, it's complicated. It's a it's a dialectic to to use a, 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 a an old Marxist cliche. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. You have a fascinating little essay where you discuss the memories and perceptions surrounding the attacks on the American World Trade Center, first the American and British bombings of Germany in the Second World War. You find both events to be horrifying and ethically objectionable, but you find there to be a noteworthy disparity in how they have been perceived and interpreted, and you write this as someone of both a British and Australian background. So there's another layer added onto your own understanding of the event. What are the dynamics and frameworks you see that direct our perception and understanding of an event like 9-11? And how does it lead, in your view, to a very particular set of solidarities between particular groups at the expense of other potential solidarities? Yeah, this was um, it's a very short essay, and it was it was actually given in response to, I mean, shortly after the nine eleven attacks. It was it was a talk, uh, and actually before uh, the United States and Britain had joined in the, the attack on the on, on the Gulf War, um, and it's partly occasioned my the, the, the essay by the thought that um, my own my father had actually flown in 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 in, in RAF bomber command during the Second World War. Uh, and was was himself very 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 guilty about the bombing of cities which which he'd been involved in. Uh, what I was trying to say first of all is is that yes the the the, the, the Al Qaeda attack on 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 the World Trade Center uh, was terroristic uh, and 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 uh, because it involves the killing of large numbers of of of, of innocent bystanders, non-combatants. Um, but this was also true uh, of the Allied uh, aerial bombing attack offensive uh, against Germany, uh, such as at Dresden. Uh, my father didn't bomb Dresden, by the way. He, he bombed Hamburg and Berlin, but not Dresden. Um, uh, but it was also true of, of the, of the uh, Allied attacks um, on Iraq when the war got going. And, uh, the, 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 now, what I want to stress, I, I think, I think ter- we've, we've come to define terrorism as something that private individuals do, which is odd since the first modern use of terrorism is actually to describe the agents of the French revolutionary government. Uh, and I, I think we have to retain the sense or recover the sense that terrorism is something that governments do too. And mass bombing of civilians is 
the quintessential example of a terroristic war uh, or a terrorism in war. Uh, and that's true for the attacks on Germany, but it's also true for the nuclear attacks on Japan. Uh, and I, what I wanted to get at is is why do we why do, why um, why do we not see this when we're thinking about the the bombing of Iraqi cities, uh, but we do see it easily. Why do we Australians and British people as well uh, see this when we're, when we're, when we when the nine eleven is attacked, when the, when the World Trade Center was attacked on nine eleven. Uh, now that that led me to to think that, that part of the problem, and, and I, I I linked um, part of the problem is that is that we all know we non-Americans all know too much about America, uh, and I, in the essay I link what I call media imperialism. That's that's the United States dominant of the in, dominance of the international media space, and um, with what I call semi-terrorism, because if you look at the attack on the World Trade Center. Uh, it was clearly designed to be a media event. The way there's one aircraft hits the hits building, and then there's I've forgotten how long, but there was quarter of an hour. There was time for all the television crews to 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 focus on the tower when the second airplane came in. So everyone got to see the the media event, and that's why I thought it's a kind of it is terroristic. It kills lots of people, but it was also meant to be a terroristic sign that you actually see it on the television. Um, and, and so I was intrigued by, well, why? Why had they done this? And it seems to me part of the answer is because because everybody globally, including Al-Qaeda terrorists, know the, knew the significance of the World Trade Center, knew the, the cultural significance of New York. And then I, I, that's also true for those of us in the West. Uh, we, we in the West also knew... Far, far too well these streets of New York. So we were, we were, we were able, even though we, we, Australians, Britons were able to identify with what happened in New York in a way that we weren't able to identify with what happened in Iraq, Afghanistan. Uh, so 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 it, it's it, both sides. There's a kind of there is a semiotic aspect uh, to 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 the way these things were played out. Uh, one of the clues for this for me was was, was Tony Blair, uh, who was the British Prime Minister at the time. Um, uh, because Blair at one point actually actually says that Britain will stand by the United States, uh, by New York, just as the United States stood by, by Britain and London during the Blitz. Now, what's fascinating about that is it's not true. The United States was neutral throughout the entire Blitz. Um, Australia stood by Britain, but, but but the United States didn't. The United States doesn't enter the war, as everybody knows, until Pearl Harbor. Um, but but I was intrigued. Why, why did Blair invoke this? Why was he able to, to invoke this? And hardly anybody objected to it. And I think the answer is because... In media terms, in Hollywood terms, in film terms, this is how we see the Second World War. We see Britain stands alone, um, and uh, then the United States comes in. And that's the way the, the, the movies tend to tell the story of the Second World War. Um, they gloss over very quickly the fact that there were some months in which Britain was allied with the Soviet Union and the United States was still neutral. Uh, um, so, so Blair remembers it that way, and most people do. So... And I'm sure that most Australians do too. So we were we are able to identify with New York. You know, this, of course, it, it's, we see New York on our movies and our in our television all the time, and we are much less able to identify uh, with Kabul uh, or, or, or with Afghanistan or, or Iraq. Um, but but that's also what makes New York vulnerable uh, because the terrorists knew how culturally salient New York was, how the World Trade Center was the was the target hit. Turning to the final chapters where you start focusing on science fiction, uh, you have an essay that looks very closely at a couple television shows, Buffy the Vampire Slayer and The X-Files. Both shows share a number of characteristics, but you're looking at them as, in certain respects, exemplifying the relationship forged in the 1990s between a certain understanding of identity in that identity's relationship to both politics and commodification. Can you unpack what you see going on here? Yes, okay. Uh, I mean, the, the, link, the connecting point uh, between identity, identity, 
map politics and commodification was was really the politics of the Clinton presidency, Bill Clinton. Uh, what what it seemed to be that that both these series, uh, which which uh, which I myself watched and rather enjoyed, um, but but they both seemed to be constant with the politics of of the Clinton years. Um, uh, in the first case case, I mean the the, the significance of, of identity is, is 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 identity politics, the an idea of politically correct identity politics, uh, especially with respect to gender and, and race. Uh, and they are, by comparison with earlier TV programs, they they clearly uh, play with non-sexist and non-racist um, or less racist uh, conceptions of identity. Um, now, now, but this, this, these are also linked to uh, to, to corporate commodification. Uh, that they are themselves corporate commodity products, um, but also there, there is no there is no critique in in in, in either of these um, uh, series. There's 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 no critique uh, of differences of class uh, as as distinct from differences of race and gender. So so what it seemed to me was that was that what the world vision, if you like, that was in, that was played out in in, in both series. Uh, seemed to me uh, uh, essentially uh, uh, an instance, uh, a yuppie world vision, yeah, the young upperly, upperly mobile professionals. Yep, I don't, don't, don't people still say yuppies? I suspect they don't, but it was it was a term you I've used. I've heard the term here yeah. and there. It was. Uh, it seems. It seems. I'm mean, certainly. If you think about um, Mulder and Scully, the two FBI agents in in, in the X Files, they're they're both um, attractive, young. Uh, and 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 yeah, they're they're, they're successful. They're well educated, uh, and the the the, the, the program is, is constructed against two others. The, the one are the rednecks, the backwards. You know, so you you go out into into into, into the into part into the United States, away from the big cities, uh, out in out in out in the country, and there you find some sort of really weird people. Uh, but it's also against big government because. Um, uh, you don't really trust the the the, the senior authorities that that are, that are standing as against the FBI or even the own FBI's own senior hierarchies. So big government on the one hand and red knucks next on the other uh, are the sources of opposition. And I think that's true also in in Buffy, uh, certainly in the Buffy episodes that I looked at, um, because I was looking at, at a series of episodes which which were which were uh, about um, a mechanical demonoid. Uh, and and I was relating that to the to an episodes about about a Frankensteinian science in, in the X Files, uh, and so that that opposition between between that that kind of yuppie politics seemed to me to be precisely what the Clinton government was about. I mean, the Clinton government was was not about delivering anything much to the Democrats, um, the working class, trade union, labor union base. Uh, but it certainly wasn't about identifying. It was delivering on, on grounds of gender equality and racial equality. I mean, the whole thing about Clinton being the first black president um, just because he played the saxophone was part of an ideology that this is going to be uh, uh, beyond racism, beyond sexism. And it's picked, that, that's picked up. It's renewed in the Obama administration. Uh, I can't think of an equivalent science fiction show, um, but I think it is renewed at a later date, and and it obviously provo- provokes eventually the backlash that is Trumpism. Um, but that's what I was trying to explore: uh, the kind of cultural politics that are, that are, that, are the, that the connection between the cultural politics of those two series and and, and the politics of the Clinton administration. Turning to some broader themes, two of the predominant trends in science fiction writing are utopia and dystopia, which you pit against each other with Orwell representing a certain dystopian vision of the future and other writers like Ursula Ginn articulating and Frederick Jameson theorizing a more utopian vision. So how do these two concepts function in science fiction, and in what ways do they serve to either open up or close off certain possibilities for how we imagine our current situation and our possibilities for possible political engagement? Yeah. Uh, clearly, utopia and, dy- and dystopia are, are very important uh, uh, subgenres of science fiction. I mean, it, 
crudely, you can say that science, the, the imaginary worlds of science fiction, they're either better worlds, in, which means they're utopias, or they're worse worlds, which means they're dystopias, or sometimes they're just the same sort of world with a, with a new with a new invention. Um, but an awful lot of them are utopias and dystopias, and so you can uh, you can identify these these, these really important subgenres within the genre. Um, I, I I contrast them analytically, um, but 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 in in the essays in a, in a couple of the essays, uh, but but I, I, I but I'm not actually arguing for one and against the other. I, I think there are good and bad examples of of utopias, and there are good and bad examples of dystopias as well. Um, uh, the, the, the dystopias that are that are that, are, that seems to me to be most valuable are those that function as warnings. Uh, and that's uh, and those are the ones that are most politically consequential, and, and and clearly the most famous of those probably is Orwell's 1984, certainly in in, in the English language. Right? Uh, it, we, and it was immensely influential on science fiction, not just on literary science fiction, so called, but also on genre science fiction. In the 1950s, you get lots and lots of dystopias that are that are the kind of Orwellian warnings. Um, the exact the the, the the best examples, the most interesting examples of utopias are not those that are kind of facile celebrations of the present pushed forward, um, but rather those that really do explore the possibilities of of, of, of better and different worlds. And certainly, one of, I, I would say that um, uh, a different and plausible worlds. So I think Le, Le Guin's the, Dis, the Dispossessed is is a very very good example of that kind of utopia. Um, which, because it shows the limitations of utopia and the way utopia is threatened as well, uh, so that it's it's a, it's, a, it's and it's been extra, extremely influential on, on on other science fiction. Now, the Jemison is a slightly I'll bring him in here. Um, you, you mentioned Orwell, Le Guin, and then Jemison, right? Uh, in the essay, I'm actually disagreeing with with, with Jemison, uh, and I'm disagreeing with him rather than with Le Guin. Uh, because I actually think that, that, that I think Fred Jemison mis, misunderstands Orwell's 1984. Um, I, he he reads it as a Cold War anti-utopia, uh, a, a way of, 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 of an argument against socialism. In fact, uh, now I now I think that's a misreading. Uh, first of all, it's not a Cold War text. It, it, it's, it's written. It's it's written before uh, 1948. It's 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 a, it's reflecting back on the 1930s and the 1940s. It's not a 1950s text, uh, and it, it's a warning. It's a critical warning, fundamentally against fascism, but also against Stalinism. Uh, and that that form of warning is it, 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 it comes from a left wing position. Or as Orwell described his politics, he was a democratic socialist. Uh, and that wasn't an individual eccentricity. He was a, he'd been a member of the Independent Labour Party, which was a left-wing breakaway from the British Labour Party. Uh, and uh, and he'd gone to Spain and, and fought with the, in the PUM, uh, which was the, the sister party of the ILP during the Spanish Civil War. Uh, and Orwell simply wasn't a CIA cold warrior, although he was represented thus in the United States. He was actually a democratic socialist. That's that. I know that's, but that's the, that's Bernie Sanders' t- word term. But in fact, Orwell uses exactly the same words to describe his own politics. And I, I think I think Fred just simply misconstrues uh, what Orwell's politics were. And I also think he misunderstands 1984 because he he ignores the, the appendix on Newspeak, which is the last dozen or so pages of the novel. And those are meant to introduce optimism into the novel, and they do introduce optimism because they depict, they situate the novel within a world uh, where where Big Brother has been overthrown, uh, where 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 the world once again writes in English, not in Newspeak. Uh, so I, I think I'm a great admirer of Fred Jameson's literary criticism. I just think he's wrong about Orwell, right about Le Guin. Uh, and why I think he's wrong about Orwell, I think it's partly that he he doesn't explore the, the this distinctively British social context within which Orwell was writing, the context of the British left in, in the 30s and 40s. In the final essay, which you co-authored with J.R. Bergman, Jurek Davidson, and Susan Cousin, 
you draw some very explicit connections to fiction and climate change. And one thing I found really interesting is how you connect three predominant predictions about climate change, cooling, heating, and flooding, to three primordial elements, ice, fire, and water. These three elements feature very prominently not just in science fiction, but in a variety of other important texts and stories. So are there some key themes you find in these elements running through the history of literature? And in what ways are there archetypal significances or meanings possibly directing our understanding of what climate change is going to be? You're clearly right. Ice, fire, and, and water. Flood is the term that I used, actually, and there's, there's a reason for that. Yeah, they're enduring tropes. Um, but some are more important and more enduring than others. Um, and uh, the, the one that I think is crucial, the, the, the most fundamental of all the, of the, of the, th- the three, is, is flood. Uh, and the reason for that is, is because of Genesis, um, because of the story of Noah. Although, actually, the, the story of Noah is, is, is almost certainly, well, is very probably itself a reworking of an earlier story in the Epic of Gilgamesh, um, the Akkadian, a uh, much earlier Akkadian epic. Um, but what the significance of Genesis, though, is, uh, uh, and I, I think of the Noah story in Genesis, is, is that it's, it's a, a crucial archetype because it's so important to so many very, very large religions. It's, it's a Jewish story, of course, in the first place, but it becomes central to Christianity, to, to Islam, to Mormonism, um, to the Baha'i faith. So, so that it, it's um, the story is incredibly well known uh, in many cultures through many different religions, uh, and 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 that does seem to me to me to be to, to be more fundamental. Than, than than ice stories, which are very, I mean, I, there are hardly any ice stories in the Middle East for obvious reasons. Um, uh, it's even more important than fire stories. Uh, I suspect fire stories might actually have been more important in in Australia historically, um, for obvious reasons. But but globally, the flood archetype is the most important one. Uh, and what I was interested in in, in part there, uh, and uh, and I'm. I'm I worked together with on that story with and the, the, the three names you meant, Rurik and Susan and James. They were all research assistants with me uh, on my uh, on the pro, um, an Australian Research Council funded project on on, on science fiction. Um, and what we we definitely concluded that, that this was this was crucial the the the, the, the flood motif, and that in and that when modern science fiction gets going in in basic really in England and France in the 19th century, uh, it, it, it really does pick up on the flood motif because it's there in the culture. It's there and available for use, and much more so than, than ice and fire. The ice and fire uh, uh, tropes appear in science fiction. They're mainly in the 20th century, uh, and they appear really not in response to this ancient mythology, but in response to, to, to the new science, uh, because it's in the late 19th century that we, we discover, uh, we, we, we learn about the Ice Ages, and it's in the uh, late, late 19th century that we, that, that we discover the first models of how global warming might develop. We discover the greenhouse effect. Uh, and all of the, they, although these don't directly impact on science fiction, they provide part of its background, so that in the 20th century, uh, these are these become gr- uh, increasingly significant preoccupations. For most of the 20th century, ice is more important than than, than fire. Uh, uh, the, the fire is you, know, you get lots of flooding and lots of ice stories, um, but it's only really in the very end of the century uh, and then in the 21st century that 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 that, 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 that Fire stories become more and more important. I mean, there, there's an early example with J.G. Ballard, but it, but it's nothing like as significant as the 19th century flood stories. Um, and so, so, so climate science actually feeds into uh, the development of, of, of climate fiction eventually. Um, yeah, does, does that? I, that's 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 the way I would read it. So the fundamental one is the Great Flood. As time goes on, fiction writers are going to continue engaging with climate change. And you even write, paraphrasing Yuan Nisbet, what climate science now most needs from science fiction is a contemporary equivalent to Neville Shute's nuclear doomsday novel On the Beach. 
So we already talked about Shute's novel a bit, so feel free to refer back to that for thinking about why it's such a good template for thinking about nuclear annihilation. But I'm particularly curious to hear what, in your view, this ideal climate change novel would look like, and if there are any promising examples you've come across recently that might point us in the right direction. Right. Um, of course, it's, it must be obvious that one of my reasons for being interested in On the Beach is that it's an Australian novel. Uh, and, it's a, and it's an Australian novel that, that was unusually su- successful globally. Which is, you know, most Australian novels get, don't get don't get further than Australia. Um, this is quite quite different. It had a, it had a, a, a global impact. Uh, your listeners probably won't remember this. Most of them, I hope, won't. I hope they're young enough to have never heard of it. But it was it was it was a bestseller, a bestseller in hardback uh, and then in paperback. In, not only in Australia, but but quite quickly in in, in the United States and in Great Britain and in Canada. Um, it was uh, so. So it's bestseller as a hardback, and then it's 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 a bestseller as a paperback. It was translated into many many languages within a, within a, the first few years. It was translated into uh, into twenty five, and it's now many more than that. Um, uh, then, of course, it's 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 adapted for film, it, it, for a Hollywood blockbuster, and then for television, uh, and then for radio, uh, and. It, it, it has, has, I think, a, a, an appreciable um, effect on the movements for nuclear disarmament in the 1960s, but also on the negotiations between the then three nuclear powers, which were the United States, the Soviet Union, and, and Britain, uh, to, that established the 1963 Test Ban Treaty. Now, now, that's what a successful climate fiction novel will look like. It will be best-selling. It will result in multiple translations, especially multiple translations, I should stress this, through English and French. You, you need to recognize um, that, that, that um, English and French are the, are the two global languages. I mean, of, 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 the, of the, the six largest publishing industries in the world, um, three of them are the United States, Britain, and France. Um, uh, the other three are, 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 are Russia, China, and Germany. Um, but the significance of the English of the Anglophone and the Francophone ones, is that these are crucial centres for, for, for retranslation. If you get published in English or in French, you're much more likely to get translated into Czech or Polish than if you don't get published in English and, and, and French. So, so, uh, so the, 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 the successful Cli-Fi novel will be best-selling, it will be multiply translated, it will be multiply adapted into many media, uh, not just movies and television, television but you know, crucially those. And then hopefully it will have an effect on policy shifts. Now, the, the thing that I would add to that is, I mean, that's just a description of, 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 of how Shute's novel work, worked. I'll add in another factor, which is I, I suspect it might well come from the periphery of the world literary system, as Shute's novel did, uh, at the, the periphery being Australia. Now, I'll, I'll explain just very briefly what I mean by that. Uh, I have a model in, of the, uh, I develop a model of the world literary system, which is substantially derived from Franco Moretti and Emmanuel Wallerstein, in which, the, which I talk about the, the core, and that's the six publishing industries I've just mentioned, um, the semi-periphery, um, and then the, the, the and then the periphery, which includes Australia, which is you know clearly a minor publishing industry. Uh, I think one of the odd, one of the odd things about um, the core periphery relations is that although it's the core literary cultures that have the that, that, that have the most power, if you like, much of the innovative creativity. Can, does actually come up from the periphery. It's precisely because there's a kind of freedom of movement in the periphery. Um, you 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 adopt the core models, characters, tropes, plots, and so on, but you play with them and adjust them to local circumstances, and uh, which I think is what Shoot did in a way, because Shoot responded to the uh, the distinctive apocalyptic hedonism of Australian society. And that's, that's one of the weird things about the novel. You know, yes, they're, they're all going to be destroyed by nuclear radiation. The catastrophe is coming. But on the other hand, it, before that, they're going to go swimming at the beach and they're going to have, uh, um, go sailing and they're going to have a barbecue and they're going to go fishing. Uh, they're going to have and enjoy themselves 
as they as they await this terrible end. Now that that I think was it was a distinctively Australian register, which made the novel so much more powerful. Uh, and I think something like that could happen with climate fiction. I don't necessarily think Australia at all. It might, it might be from India. Um, although I, actually, if Australia keeps having bushfires, summers like this one, it, we might get some here. But I, I can think of some uh, examples. Um, I, I think um, uh, from, well, obviously from from Canada, Margaret Atwood's Mad Adam trilogy is, is extremely interesting. Uh uh, I, I, the, the, um, uh, from India, uh, Amitav Ghosh's Gun Island uh, is, is, a, is an interesting climate novel. Um, none of these has actually made it yet because nothing's made it yet, but I'm wondering what will. There are a, a number of, um, of, of, of interesting ones from Finland, uh, Antti Tumenen's Paranteja, or The Healer, and Emi, Emi Taranta's um, uh, Memory of Water. It's actually the, the Timon's Tiemann's book is the literal translation, but the English translation is a memory of water. And here in Australia, I think James Bradley's Clade and Alexis Wright's The Swan Book. Alexis Wright is an Aboriginal writer from Carpentaria. Uh, I, I think both of those are very, very interesting. Now, I'm not saying that, that those are all peripheral texts uh, and they're all interesting climate novels, whether none of them have yet but done what, what Shoot's novel did and Maybe that's now impossible. I don't know. I, I, and I, let me just backtrack. I'm not going to say that um, that only the periphery can produce promising examples. I, I actually think that Kim Stanley Robinson's uh, climate change trilogy is, is from the states is very interesting. Although it's it's peculiar how it just hasn't been translated into other languages, uh, and it's peculiar that it hasn't been adapted for any kind of film or television. In France, I think things that Jean Marc Lini's uh, um, uh, climate trilogy is, is, is very interesting. Uh, and in Germany, uh, there's a, the Maiver trilogy by Dirk C. Fleck. Is, 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 is also, neither of these is translated into English, um, which itself suggests that they're not getting very far because um, they're not even translated out of, the, well, out of their own, or, or not, out, not into many other languages. But certainly these are all, there are lots of interesting texts coming from the core and the semi-periphery as, as well as the periphery. Um, but I mean, obviously, uh, yeah, as it stands, that no text has actually achieved what what, what Schutz did. Uh, and uh, I mean, maybe maybe it's wrong to look for an individual ideal climate fiction novel. Maybe it's just a cumulative weight of climate fictions that will change the way we think about the world. Certainly, that's what Daniel Bloom, Daniel Bloom, the um, uh, the the the, the, the fi activist. Um, and blogger, uh, Daniel just thinks that the more climate fiction, the better, and maybe he's right. But certainly, I've, I do have a sense of, of, of what the ideal climate fiction novel would be like. It, we just haven't seen it yet. I, I hope that answer, answers your question. Yeah, so to kind of close things off, we always like to ask uh, our guests what, if anything, they're working on, and maybe you can talk a little bit about about any books you have coming up? Yes, yeah, sure. Um, I, I, as you might imagine, I'm working on climate fiction. One of those three research assistants that, that worked with me on 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 that on that last essay, um, James Bergman, he and I have have, have worked on a book together, uh, uh, which is called Science Fiction and Climate Change, uh, and it's it's finished. Uh, it, it isn't published yet. It's it's going to be published in in Britain by the Liverpool University Press, and I think in the States by Oxford. Uh, and it's due to come out. Um, uh, it's due to come out. Well, if if it's on if it's on schedule, it's due to come out later the, later this month. Um, we shall see whether that's actually achieved. Uh, it's the, the, they say they say it's going to be printed in in, in mid March and. It should be on sale at a good bookshop near you, um, maybe in April or perhaps May. Can you tell us a little bit about it? I, I know we kind of have been talking about some of the themes that I'm sure should come up. but Well, yeah, in a way, the, that last chapter, the, the one that you, you talked about, the ice, fire and flood one, essentially the, the book is an enormously expanded version of that essay. Uh, it takes the questions raised there. 
so it, it does use a world systems model, a core periphery model of how the world literary system works. It also traces back the history of climate fiction to Genesis and the Epic of Gilgamesh. That's in an opening historical chapter, which looks at um, 19th and 20th century, uh, early 20th century science fictions. Um, and then in the, the the bulk of the book is is, is, is a survey uh, of of, um, of different climate fictions. These are these are mainly from the very late twentieth century and the twenty first century, and it looks at the way uh, it, it identifies six main responses to climate change, ranging from denialism, which and there are certainly are a number of denialist novels, um, uh, right through to to uh, uh, to possibly utopian solutions and also dystopian warnings about climate fiction. Uh, and, it and it looks at uh, texts taken from a, a wide range of, of, of cultures, and from the United States and Australia, but, but also Britain, France, Germany, India, uh, Japan, uh, China, Russia, uh, Finland. Uh, I mentioned Finland. Uh, and there are, there are readings of particular texts but they're couched in relation to uh, a, a, a general model. There's also a chapter, which is a bit too brief, I'm afraid, but there's a chapter on climate fiction in other media as well, uh, which looks at cinema, television, computer games, uh, and at rock music, actually. I confess that that, chap that part of that chapter was almost entirely written by James, as indeed was the bit on computer games that... Um, at my age, you're, you're not really up on, on rock music any longer. I, I was... I was I was I was big on on Bruce Springsteen, you know, but um, following recent stuff, it's, I've, I've relied on James. Um, but yeah, the, the, that's that's that chapter is uh, is is, an, is is perhaps a a map of where someone else could go with another book to look at the, the climate fiction in media other than that. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. So, Andrew Milner, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.